Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Obscurities. I'm Debbie Rashawn. Somnambulism, a sleep disorder involving complex motor acts, sleepwalking, rising from the bed and walking or performing other complex motor behavior during an apparent sleep state. Much mystery has been attached to this, although some may say it is no more mysterious than dreaming. The chief difference between the two is that the sleepwalker, other than dreaming, also uses the part of the brain that stimulates walking. Sleepwalking usually occurs during the first third of the night and lasts a few minutes to a half an hour. The sleeper is relatively unresponsive, not easily awakened, and typically amnesic for the episode later. It is most likely to happen during periods of emotional stress and usually ceases when the source of anxiety is removed. In many cases, it occurs only once or twice and does not happen again. If it frequently occurs, called sleepwalking disorder, it may stem from severe emotional distress. It is also called somnambulism, a form of hysteria which purposeful behavior is forgotten. And then there are cases of criminal somnambulism. This incident occurred in early 1873. The small village of Candia in New Hampshire has a somnambulistic sensation. A boy named Wilfred Fitz, about 15 years of age, who has been staying for a month or two with his uncle, Jesse R. Fitz, in the village, is a somnambulist. He has frequently left his bed in his sleep, and one night last week, he was found in the attic of a neighboring house, fast asleep on the floor, with Mr. Fitz's large, broad axe by his side. He did not seem to know how he got there, but an investigation showed that Wilfred got out of a two-story window of Mr. Fitz's house and had walked to the tool house, taken his axe and a ladder, and gone to his neighbor's house where he was found. On Monday night, his condition presented a dangerous phase. Living with a nearby neighbor was an orphan boy by the name of John Emerson, also about 15 years old. On the night in question, the orphan John went to a nearby residence, a farmer's home by the name of Mr. Rowe, about three-quarters of a mile away, to keep the family company during the absence of Mr. Rowe, who was away in a neighboring town. At midnight, when all were presumed to be sleeping, Mr. Rowe's aged mother was awakened by a noise in the room occupied by the boy. She called out to him. Hello? Receiving no answer, she got up and went to the room in the dark and felt in the bed and was almost horror-stricken by finding his body and the hot, sticky blood flowing throughout the bedclothes. 
No noise had awakened Mrs. Rowe, who was sleeping downstairs, and they discovered that Johnny had been murdered with an axe. Mrs. Rowe ran to her neighbors, and the first to arrive was Jesse Fitz. To his astonishment, Jesse discovered his own axe on the floor, covered in blood, next to the mutilated body of the young boy. The boy was also covered with blood, his face horribly cut, and the clothing and floor bespattered. A physician hastily called upon arrival found a terrible gash extending from the right corner of the mouth straight through to the back of the neck and under the ear, and another laceration extending from just below the nose on the left side about two inches long, penetrating into the mouth and separating the jaw, cutting out a piece of the jaw and pushing out several teeth. He also had a frightful gash across the bridge of his nose from eye to eye. The thumb and two fingers were cut off entirely on the right hand and lay on the bed. There was also a severe gash across the back of the left hand and one on the wrist. This grisly, bloody deed was supposed to be the work of the boy, Wilfred Fitz, in a somnambulistic state. He was found at his home in his bed the next morning. He had not said anything about the incident, nor had anyone mentioned it to him. In the morning, he appeared cheerful and unconcerned. The boys had known each other, but the Fitz boy had not, to anyone's knowledge, been inside the Rose house where the attack had been committed. Still, he was in the yard two or three days before. It is remarkable if he is the criminal, whether awake or asleep, that he passed three other houses over a lonely road in traveling from the Fitzes to the Rose. Whoever committed the crime took a chair from the barn and placed it outside near the parlor window to gain entry. When the perpetrator passed through the hall, up the stairway, and to the rear of the house where the boy Emerson was asleep, he went out of the house the same way. On the sill of the window was a handprint of blood. This case is one of the most remarkable cases of somnambulism on record. There is nothing on which to base any theory of this incident. A later dispatch following up on the death stated that despite the complicated character of the boy's injuries, they were not necessarily fatal. A somewhat odd addition considering the horrifying and gruesome result. After an investigation, local newspapers reported the aftermath as such. Young Fitz, whose parents reside in the city and who committed the somnambulistic assault at Candia, was arrested yesterday afternoon via telegram from County Solicitor Frank of Exeter, New Hampshire. Fitz is a bright-looking lad and does not take his confinement to heart. He says he has no recollection of the matter. There is no question that he committed the attack, and a detailed account of his former actions would show that he has been fearfully and painfully afflicted. His father, a highly respected citizen, had a lengthy interview with City Marshal Howells last night. He gave a complete account of the boy, who was evidently not fit to be at large because of his tendency to commit barbaric crimes during sleepwalking. While it has been challenging to determine precisely what happened in the Fitz case, all indicators point to a prolonged stay in a mental health facility. 
Prosecutors and the defense's families seem to agree that the minimum requirements of the circumstances dictated supervised confinement. While that case seemed resolved by confinement to an asylum, the sleepwalking defense is... <sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Often an attorney's desperate and last-ditch attempt to represent a defendant. But in 1846, a brilliant lawyer used the sleepwalking defense in perhaps its first successful application in a criminal court. Albert Terrell was suspected of killing a prostitute in Boston. Maria Bickford was found dead in a less-than-respectable boarding house. The 21-year-old girl was found nearly decapitated, with her neck slashed six inches long and three inches deep. The presumed murder weapon, a blood-stained razor, was found by investigators nearby in the room. The mattress had been set afire, charring the girl's flesh and burning some of her hair. Detectives also found a man's bloody vest and cane in the room. Maria also suffered injuries prior to her death, including a bloody split ear. Albert Terrell was seen with the victim earlier in the evening, but was nowhere to be found after the smoldering fire had been extinguished. Terrell fled to a relative's house who helped him evade police by hiding him and providing him with money to escape. Terrell bolted to Montreal and planned to continue to England, but poor weather conditions forced his ship to return to New York City. Terrell boarded a boat to New Orleans, but the fugitive had been spotted, arrested in Louisiana, and returned to Boston to face the charge of murder. The case became a media sensation upon Terrell's return to the city. Albert Terrell was not a random vagabond, but a young, wealthy, and married citizen with two young children whose lousy behavior was known throughout the city. Albert was frequently seen with Maria Bickford, often traveling together under assumed names. Terrell's wife was not oblivious to her wayward husband's extracurricular activities. Previous to the trouble Terrell now found himself in, he had to answer court charges, accused of adultery, but managed to elude authorities for weeks. When he was finally captured and faced the judge, Friends, relatives, and even his wife pleaded for leniency, hoping he would be reformed. When he was released after a postponement, Terrell immediately returned to Maria. Now, locked up in jail for the murder of Maria Bickford, it looked like Albert Terrell's luck had run out. But as a wealthy man, he could afford the best attorney. 
In this case, Terrell hired Rufus Choate, a U.S. senator from Massachusetts, whose mentor was none other than Daniel Webster, one of the most prominent American lawyers of the 1800s. Choate was a gifted orator and skilled attorney known for his successful, ingenious defense strategies. There was no direct evidence, only circumstantial. No one actually saw Terrell kill Maria. There was not even any motive. Rufus Choate used this to sow doubt in the jurors' minds and tear away at the prosecutor's well-built case. A witness testified on the morning of the murder she spoke with Terrell, who she stated was in a strange state, as if asleep or crazy. A coroner admitted Maria's wound could have been self-inflicted. Terrell's brother-in-law, who received him fleeing from the alleged murder, testified Terrell claimed to be escaping from the adultery charge and was shocked to learn about Maria's murder. Maria's character and morals were thoroughly discussed and questioned in such a way that there was no question. Suicide was, of course, almost the natural death of persons of her character. Terrell himself was an outstanding and respectable individual until he became ensnared by Maria's charms. Maria was a villainous prostitute who victimized Terrell with her depraved and lascivious arts. When the defense attorneys introduced their defense, they referred to famous instances where Alexander the Great penned a battle in his sleep. In La Fontaine wrote some of his best verses while in the same unconscious state. Choate quickly segues into Terrell's sleepwalking affliction, beginning at age six and worsening as he grows older. Relatives confirmed Terrell's disorder, and a doctor testified that one could, without effort, get dressed, move about, murder someone, start a fire, and flee the scene. On the fourth and final day of the trial, Rufus Choate delivered his closing remarks in a way only Rufus Choate or Daniel Webster could. In what would be a six-hour deliverance, Choate tore apart the prosecution's case, stressing there was no direct evidence, only circumstantial. He spoke extensively about the sleepwalking disease Terrell suffered from throughout his life. And Choate talked about testimony from those close to Terrell about the effects of his sleepwalking on those around him. Choate noted that Terrell never admitted to the killing and had no motive to kill Maria. Jurors, courtroom spectators, and reporters listened with rapt attention, entirely engrossed with the attorney's eloquent and expressive oratory skills and enthralled with his charisma, confidence, and stamina. He left the jurors with the final thought. Somnambulism was the only explanation for a killing without a motive. There is no reason for premeditated murder without a motive. When the jurors went into deliberations, no one knew how long they would take. But less than two hours later, they returned with a not guilty verdict. 
The following year, prosecutors brought another charge against Terrell, forcing him to undergo another trial for arson because he allegedly set fires to cover up the murder for which he was previously acquitted. Rufus Choate again represented Terrell and successfully obtained an acquittal of all charges in the second case. Albert Terrell gained notoriety from the accusations and the subsequent trials, but was soon forgotten and lived uneventfully until he died in 1880. A footnote? After the trials, Terrell wrote to his attorney asking for a portion of his attorney fees to be refunded. Terrell's reasoning for this? His acquittals seemed too easy. To date, he is yet to receive a refund. The later 1800s and early 1900s saw a few other cases that used the sleepwalking defense, and most were unsuccessful during the trial. But a few convictions were reversed during an appeal. A few of the original trials raised just enough doubt for reconsideration. In more recent times, since the 1980s, the defense has been used sporadically and often desperately in violent murder cases with little success. But there was one exception in 1987. Kenneth Parks was accused of violently attacking his in-laws, resulting in his mother-in-law's death and his father-in-law's narrow survival. Several factors led to his acquittal including extreme confusion, indifference to the severe pain he endured due to severed tendons in both hands, a genetic history of parasomnia, and a warm and close relationship with his in-laws. Experts testified that Parks was sleepwalking during the attack, and a jury found him not guilty. Extraordinarily, Parks drove 14 miles after rising from his bed and committed the crime. Afterward, he then drove to the police station to report that he thought he may have committed a murder. Evading responsibility for savage behavior is unlikely when the evidence points your way. Perpetrators of violent crime can expect severe punishment from society. But sometimes, a lawyer has no other choice but to pursue an outlandish defense like sleepwalking. Desperate times call for desperate measures. It's just one more last straw to grasp before you fall into obscurity. Huh?